I asked Simeon how old he was in 1992. Because the last time I saw Simeon until just this moment was 1992. Uh, and Simeon was 10 years old. Uh, but Simeon's older brother, uh, oldest brother, John, was my son's best friend when we were in Charleston for two years from 89 to 92. That's three years, isn't it? It's about two and a half years. So I, I, I knew Simeon. Uh, I knew John uh, better because he was at my house a lot playing with our dogs, if you can remember the famous sermon with the, with the dogs that John did in the Lenten series. But, uh, but, I, but I knew Simeon as uh, just this uh, 10-year-old, bright, uh, well-mannered, just the epitome of what you want in a child kind of guy. And here he is. All gone downhill since All gone then. downhill, I'm sure. So it's just a thrill, Simeon, to have you here. And you look well. You look like your mother, I think. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, I think that's nice. So, and I look, forward, I look forward to seeing them tonight. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and look forward to hearing you preach Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Also look forward to hearing you uh, teach this morning. Uh, and so I will let any further to do. Uh, let us have a prayer. Uh, dear Father, we thank you for the ministry of Simeon. I uh, ask that you would bless him in a mighty way. Fill him with your grace, that your power might be made perfect in his weakness. Uh, bless his words to us this morning, that it may be your words, and open our ears and our hearts to hear and receive. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. It is such a pleasure to be back here in Birmingham after almost nine years. Um, I can't believe it. This is, those of you who um, don't know me, I grew up here and uh, have very, very happy memories um, and haven't been back in, in too long. So thanks to everyone, including to you, Frank, for inviting me. It's just such a joy to be here. The first thing that happened when I walked in an hour ago is I saw two of my most beloved high school teachers right there and just that's just I think that's going to be the way of it this, these next few days people who matter very deeply I also saw Jim Palmer as well I'm just kidding <laughs> so in order to introduce the topic I've chosen to speak about today uh, I want to give a little bit of personal background now I hope this I don't want this to be sort of too academic or something it's what I do in my day job so I'm apologies if I'm fall into that mode sometimes but um so since graduating from college eight years ago, I've been living abroad, studying and teaching theology in England. As of about a year ago, I got a job where I'm essentially um, paid to write a book over four years. I'm a research fellow um, at one of the colleges at Oxford University. It's a very cool job to have. They just give you money and you sit in the library. Um, <laughs> uh, during this time, I'm writing a book about emotion and the heart in the theology of Martin Luther and his colleague Philip Melanchthon. So really at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, how people understood the place of emotions like fear and love and joy in relation to God, how central the heart is um, in their view of human nature and of the Christian life. So I thought today, in the setting of this class, I might try to present some of the more interesting and hopefully actually practically relevant uh, themes. I know you can't imagine that some of the things I do are not practically relevant. Um, in, uh, I had a book that cost $120, so that gives you sort of a, a sense of the 
how obscure these things are. But anyway, um, hopefully not today. I hope the title of the class hasn't put you off as sort of overly academic um, or sort of random. You may be asking what on earth is the affective tradition? Why should I care? Um, I don't blame you, if so. I'll explain what the title means uh, in a minute. But my goal today is just to bring some of the history of the church, uh, and especially the history of Protestant Christianity since the 16th century, uh, to bear on some of the basic realities that we experience in our lives as Christians and as human beings in the world today. So as food for thought, and also in some ways, hopefully, as a little bit of a word of comfort in the quest to understand ourselves and each other a little bit better. Ultimately, what I want to talk about today is human nature, as in what are the real engines that drive us in our lives? What is the role of deep-seated desires and feelings? Are our feelings, emotions, and affections central to who we are and how God relates to us, or are they peripheral or even dangerous? And affections, by the way, is basically just one of the old technical terms for what we now call emotion, or the passions. Um, so that's all it really means. The affective tradition is a, a tradition that took affect, affections, emotion very seriously in theology. And finally, what is the place of God in all of this? What does God's grace have to do with human desire and emotion? Now, the reason I hope you might find this at least a little bit interesting, possibly even helpful, is that you and I are all creatures of desire and emotion. Emotion and desire are good words. Oh, good categories for describing where we actually live from day to day. Our feelings of anxiety about the future, for example, or grief over the loss of a loved one. Our love for our children, love, grief, anxiety, these are all emotions, affections. Our fear of the judgment of a boss or of friends. Our anger about broken relationships, about tragic events. Excitement about, say, national championships in football. I've heard there might have been a couple of those since I've been away. That kind of excitement and joy that you have with sports is very much a form of emotion or affection. So is boredom during a really boring meeting or a tiresome conversation. And let's not forget desire, perhaps most saliently for love, for sex, for intimacy of every kind with other people. And even our minds and intellects, our so-called rational side, in fact, have a strong affective or emotional component to them. So to find some book or some piece of history or some economic insight interesting is also to feel something about it, a sense of mastery or satisfaction or just sheer intellectual delight. So all of these things fall into the area that theologians would call affections and desire. Uh, and that's what I mean when I say that emotion is, to a significant degree, where we really live. So to learn about emotion and desire and how they're understood theologically is to learn about ourselves and what matters to us from day to day. So in what follows, I want to talk briefly about three things. First, the place of emotion and desire in the Bible, above all in a key passage in Galatians. Second, a certain tradition in Protestant theology uh, called the affective tradition that views the human heart as really the center of the human person with some important theological consequences. And finally, just a couple of practical implications we might draw 
from, uh, from these kinds, this, this approach to, to Christianity. Now, it almost goes without saying that the Bible has a lot to say about emotion, about affections, about the heart. Think of the Psalms. I mean, uh, one way of understanding what they are is as expressions of deep emotion to God. Joy, anxiety, anger, worship, you name it. Or think of all the discussion of joy and peace and love in the New Testament. These are all, not least, emotions and feelings toward God and each other, as much as they are anything. Or think about the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus tells us that feeling angry, a classic affection, is ethically the same as murder in God's sight. And likewise, lust in God's view is the same as the act of committing adultery in a very important sense. In God's view, according to that strand of Jesus' teaching, our hearts, our feelings, our desires are more important than our actual deeds. Then there are various discussions about trees and fruit in the New Testament, the place where Jesus teaches about how it's what comes out of the heart that makes a person unclean, uh, not the things we do or our external circumstances. So to a significant degree, especially in the New Testament, Sin can be understood in terms of wrong or destructive affections and desires. And righteousness and sanctification are essentially the opposite, good desires and feelings kindled by the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the most influential passage about all of this, at least from the perspective of its impact on later theology over the centuries, is uh, the discussion about trees, about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Uh, which is on the top of your handout. And I won't refer to every quote in the handout. Partly they're just good quotes that might be interesting to to look at, to reflect on, and some of them will, will come up over the course of, of our little time together. But let me read these verses from Galatians 5. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels. Notice that in both of these lists there are affections and other things in the list. So anger, joy and peace in a minute, um, and love. Uh, I am warning you as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. These verses describe the priority and the power of the Holy Spirit in the Christian life in light of a conflict, a basic inner conflict between the Spirit and the flesh. And the verses explain that when one or the other of these forces or approaches, the flesh and the Spirit, gains the upper hand, the result is radically divergent fruit, the fruit of the Spirit and the work of the flesh. The passage brings together a remarkable array of theological and pastoral categories. 
First, there's the description of the whole of human ethical life in the simple affective terms of a struggle between competing desires, those of the flesh and those of the spirit. Desiring the right thing is more fundamental than knowing the right thing and is prior to and necessary for doing the right thing. Then there's the view of the Holy Spirit in this passage, where the Spirit is understood as an enormously potent, decisive force in these matters, such that, according to verse 16, if you live by the Spirit, you simply will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Such gratification just is not a possibility in, the way that, in this verse. Third, there's the fact that all this somehow connects to a move away from the law in the Christian life, with the Spirit in some sense replacing the law or rendering it now unnecessary. So you see in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. And then fourth, there's this in the passage, there's this description of the consequences of these alternative kind of patterns of desire, I guess I'm calling them, the pattern of the flesh and the pattern of the Spirit. And by means of which patterns, the Galatians are meant to be able to interpret and assess their own lives and experiences and behaviors as a community and as individuals. So if you have love and joy and peace, that's probably a sign of the spirit. If you have these other things, it's probably a sign of the the dominance of the flesh. And then finally, there's a curious combination of of agencies behind all this in the passage. On the one hand, the spirit as all-powerful ethical agent whose presence renders the gratification of the flesh impossible but also, on the other hand, the appeal and exhortation to the Galatians not only to live by the Spirit, but also to keep in step with the Spirit, whatever that exactly means. So there's a tradition in Christian theology, a very interesting tradition, one you know, maybe worth spending four years trying to write a, a feeble little book about, um, that has viewed this particular set of categories and relationships as among the most useful and fundamental articulations in the New Testament of the internal dynamics of Christian life and faith. I call this tradition affective Augustinianism. It's my little term. Anyway, um, a term which brings together the fact that it is very oriented towards hearts and affections and emotions. And is also that the key influence theologically over this tradition is St. Augustine uh, in his, some of his writings from the early 5th century. This affective Augustinian tradition, as I'm calling it, stretches from key texts in in Augustine to Luther in the 16th century. It reaches a high watermark in the early writings of Philip Melanchthon, who was Luther's colleague and wrote the earliest Protestant systematic theology in the 1520s. And then the tradition has a highly influential coda or epilogue. So any of you who know the work of Ashley Null will be aware of this. Um, In the thought of English reformer Thomas Cranmer, and his Book of Common Prayer. So you, insofar as you are experiencing Book of Common Prayer services, you have been shaped by this theological tradition very explicitly. Um, Well, not explicitly, but uh, very clearly. This was a major influence for for Cranmer, was both Melanchthon and Augustine. So, and the debt this tradition, this tradition owes a huge debt to Galatians 5, 16 to 25, and you find that in various places. So the basic insight of this affective Augustinianism is something I've been hinting at already this morning. That the most powerful and central feature of human nature is not our minds and rational capacities, but our hearts and our capacities to feel and to desire. It is the latter 
which these writers often call our hearts, that ultimately serve to determine what we actually do in life and are what God himself is most concerned with. So as Philip Melanchthon puts it in 1521 book that he wrote, uh, quote, since God judges hearts, I think this is on your sheet, since God judges hearts, the heart and its affections must be the highest and most powerful part of man. Ethics and good works do matter greatly to this tradition, but they are relativized in comparison with the inner life of uh, dispositions and motivations. Augustine, commenting on Galatians 5 in a key place, says, That man who obliges himself to abstain from the work of sin, so someone who doesn't sin, but does so only out of fear of punishment, which the law threatens, and not from any love for righteousness, is still guilty because he is not yet free and removed from the desire of sinning. What this means is that true ethical behavior is seen as impossible without right affections. But at the same time, and this is the good news, such a behavior becomes natural and inevitable once those affections are in place. Melanchthon puts it quite bluntly at one point. Um, I mentioned this in a conference once and a very famous biblical scholar said that's a ridiculous statement uh, that Melanchthon says how can he possibly believe that but anyway here it is the spirit of God cannot be in the human heart without fulfilling the ten commandments the ten commandments are therefore observed by necessity this tradition is also relatively skeptical about the powers of human reasoning about our rational and intellectual abilities and our knowledge not because we're incapable of knowing the, or determining what we ought to do, but because, we are, uh, but because that knowledge bears very little relation to whether we are actually able to do it. So Paul's concept of the law for these thinkers is, that, is understood as very closely connected to rationality and in the intellect because it, too, describes what should and must be done but is impotent to accomplish it. So there's a critique of rationality that what goes together with the sense of the impotence of the law. As Augustine puts it at one point, it is not by law and teaching, this is on your handout too, it is not by law and teaching uttering their lessons from without, but by a secret, wonderful, and ineffable power operating within that God works in men's hearts, good dispositions of the will. Now finally, this tradition understands this priority of the heart not just as a general or abstract prioritization of, of desiring over knowing or doing, but actually as a concrete emotional reality, something you actually experience in your body, uh, in your life. Um, ultimately rooted in love, but also connected to joy and delight and other affections. Another great Augustine quote, one only loves, after all, what delights one. So it's not a picture of... Uh, Sheer duty or just doing the right thing is a picture of delight in doing the right thing and of love. Luther summarizes this whole approach to Christian life in a famous quote from his preface to Romans. He wrote this preface to the book of Romans in 1522, which you can see on your handout on the, the back page. And interestingly, so John Wesley, you know, the most effective sort of evangelist in the history of, well, the last several hundred years, um, was converted through listening to this paragraph and the paragraphs around it. Of this particular, this is what was being read when Wesley's heart was strangely warmed. He loved this, this description of the, the transformation of the heart by God's Spirit was, was anyway the occasion for Wesley's famous conversion. So here's the quote: 
But a right heart is given only by God's Spirit, who fashions a man after the law, so that he acquires a desire for the law in his heart, doing nothing henceforth out of fear and compulsion, but out of a willing heart. How shall a work please God if it proceeds from a reluctant and resisting heart? To fulfill the law, however, is to do its works with pleasure and love, to live a godly and good life of one's own accord without the compulsion of the law. This pleasure and love for the law is put into the heart by the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says. So again, in practice, what this means is that what people do in life is determined primarily by what they really desire, not by what they think they should do, or, or by deliberation about what they should do. And an implication of this is that the only way to really change behavior and to change desire is to have the old desire or affection overcome by a new, stronger one. So this is the picture of sanctification, basically, is the God giving you, making you want to love him. Uh, and that, that new desire is stronger than your old desire to serve yourself or, or whatever it is. So in a very typical Melanchthon example, anyway, he talks about Alexander the Great, you know, who conquered the world uh, a long time ago. And he says, he was a great lover of pleasures, which basically means he, he loved parties uh, and various things. Um, and even stronger, but it, I mean, like it says, even stronger than Alexander's desire to essentially party was his desire for glory. So as a result, he was in fact disciplined and hardworking because the desire for glory was stronger than the desire for debauchery. So that's the image. It's not that he was, um, he was disciplined because he had an even stronger desire. Uh, but to think a little bit more close to home than Alexander the Great, um, Think of how people in love are never able to take the advice of wiser and more experienced friends just ever. I was with a friend recently who was complaining about this, how her friends um, would often solicit her relationship advice, listen attentively, and then proceed to completely ignore that advice. And the relationships would then blow up in their face in exactly the way predicted by my wise friend. But for better or worse, that's just how desire and love work. If sound wisdom comes into conflict with strong feelings and desires, the latter win every time. And usually it is only after real experience of pain of things blowing up in your face that maybe different desires begin to be born. You know, desire not to be hurt again. <laughs> and that, that would be how Melanchthon would understand it. So the good news is that God knows this about us. And when he seeks to create change, he does, through, does so through attracting us, through making his will desirable to us, by giving us joy, not simply by giving good advice and then sort of shaking his head as we once again ignore it and follow our desires. Change for the better uh, in life, then, in this picture, doesn't take, primarily through, take place primarily through teaching or through deliberating between choosing sin and choosing God. Rather, insofar as it takes place, it is the Holy Spirit kindling new godly desires and fruit and affections in us. A new feeling of love for others, of joy in God, of gratitude for something God has done, um, of peace where we were before only in conflict. A way of understanding this is that basically true godliness feels natural. It's like a healthy tree, and this is a very common biblical metaphor for this exact thing. 
a tree doesn't choose to bear fruit or gather up the resources of its will to sort of, oh, now I'm going to really bring it all together and make some great fruit. It just produces it naturally, organically, inevitably. If, the, if everything else is in the right place, it just happens. That's the picture um, that Augustine, Luther, Melanchthon, Cranmer, Jesus in various ways, are, are drawing on. So one way of describing this would be to say that in this theological tradition, the Christian life is either impossibly difficult, and that's a, real, that's a reality, that's a thing that happens. We're simply unable to love God, to be righteous, to change our desires. Or else, with the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, the Christian life becomes extremely natural and easy in a given moment. The one thing the Christian life never is, is merely difficult or challenging. I had this experience, it's a minor little example, but in college I, I felt so guilty. My first year I, was the, I wanted to go to Christian fellowship groups and go to church and all these things, but it was so exciting. I was a freshman, I was in a new city, all these interesting people. Um, there were a lot of other things to do with my time, and I always felt guilty. I always tried to sort of summon the effort to get up in the morning and go to church or go to fellowship. Um, Colton over there went, went through this with me um, quite explicitly. Uh, and I just, it just never happened. I just didn't. I showed up at church one out of five weeks, and that was it. My faith was not absent. It was just on the side. And then, basically, I went through some very difficult times. And, uh, and suddenly, uh, through, through difficulty, basically, a, a new desire was birthed. I really wanted to be there. I had friends there who I really couldn't wait to see. And suddenly, going to church was just natural. It was easy. Because I wouldn't think of not doing it. And likewise, sort of the fellowship groups and so on. Um, and so it looked, I guess, like maybe some form of, some very minor form of sanctification of being a regular at these Christian events. It didn't take place, I and mean, when I tried to do it out of guilt, even though I knew I should, it just didn't work. But when, for other reasons, I had a real desire, then it became natural and easy, and, and I didn't even think about it. That's just a little example. Um, so as I wrap this up, and maybe we can have a some few minutes for uh, questions, there are two little kind of takeaways that I want to draw attention to here. The first is a very simple one. If you find yourself right now in your life in a position where you're trying very hard to change your desires in some area and you're failing, just accept that it's not going to work. Stop trying. Rather, the way forward you know, is to stop kicking against sort of the brick wall. In these situations, admitting powerlessness over our desires and dreams and feelings and accepting our situation as what it is, rather than as we wish it were, is the way that breakthrough can come. So is there a place in your life right now where your desires and what you think you actually should do, what actually is best for you, are in a kind of trench warfare? This will be the place where what is needed is acceptance, not new ammunition. And according to St. Paul in Galatians, you have nothing to fear the Holy Spirit is very good with powerlessness. A second upshot of all this is that we need to take our feelings and desires extremely seriously when we're undergoing any major discernment in our lives. I was in a position not that long ago of deciding whether to apply for a, a certain job at a, at a very, anyway, a job that was attractive in various ways. And, um, but as soon as this job came up, which in theory I should have really wanted, it was a really it was an ideal kind of job. I just resisted it in my. I just was like, oh, oh no! I wish this job hadn't come up. I wish I wasn't faced with this decision. Um, 
And I didn't think that, that was, oh, that's the answer, therefore. I had this resistance, this feeling, therefore, it's all resolved. Um, I know that I shouldn't apply. But it was important that I felt that way. That was something I needed to take very seriously. But there was a part of me that, that was um, reacting in my heart to, some, to this that needed to be taken seriously. And then I then spent a lot of time talking to people and deliberating and all that stuff. And it turned out that my initial impulse was right, I think, um, and I didn't end up applying. And um, all this is just a way to say that emotion and desire is very important in issues of discernment in our lives. So often people are in situations of trying to discern something. So should I marry this person? Should I apply for that job or stick where I am? Am I called to ministry of some kind or ordination? How can I best help my child in their current difficulties? And there's this funny way that Christians have sometimes, um, especially thoughtful Christians uh, who are not naive about about sin, uh, who have a low view of human nature. Uh, There's this way we have of thinking that somehow it's more righteous and wise in such discernment to ignore our desires and feelings. We think, I know there's so much selfishness and ego involved in these desires of mine, so I'll try with all my might to do the other, more painful, more selfless thing. So there's a certain kind of Christian well, sin, I think, where you pretend you want something you don't really want and lie to yourself and others about it and try to convince yourself that that's what righteousness is. I think this is a somewhat unhelpful way of thinking and is a somewhat naive way of thinking. It's a sort of emotional masochism that don't have, doesn't have very much to do with the gospel. So it, an upshot of this whole tradition I've been describing is that the starting point in discernment should always be rigorous honesty about your actual, my actual feelings and desires. Augustine and Luther and Melanchthon and Cranmer would say in this kind of situation, don't be naive, don't think that these deep desires uh, and feelings, whether they be good or bad, can change with just a little extra effort and support. Merely recognizing that your desires and feelings are destructive or foolish, and let's face it, they may well be, will not change them. The desires of the spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians are real, and so are the desires of the flesh. But the only agent who can truly bring change in these things is the Holy Spirit of God. So this means that sort of the actual constructive way forward, I think, and maybe I'm being a little maybe overstating to help us to think about it, but um, the way, the constructive way forward with such things is acceptance the admission of powerlessness and prayer and simply waiting in the middle of it for God. There's a wonderful prayer, uh, as I'm just closing up, um, there's a wonderful prayer that comes out of Galatians 5 in the affective Augustinian tradition. It's one of our collects. Many of you may have heard it many times. And I want to finish with this. I used to think it was a collect that Cranmer wrote, but it's not, unfortunately. Uh, it's someone. It's a. It's a someone following in the Cranmerian tradition, um, a generation later, uh, according to my Cranmer expert friend. Um, you can find it at the bottom of your handout, and this is deeply influenced by Galatians five, and also by, concretely actually by Augustine, by Luther, and by Melanchthon. And maybe I will. I'll pray it now, uh, and then maybe we can have a little bit of time for some questions. 
O Almighty God, who alone canst order the unruly wills and affections of sinful men, grant unto thy people that they may love the thing which thou commandest and desire that which thou dost promise, that so among the sundry and manifold changes of the world our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Apologies about my cold. Simeon, would you say this whole thing is played out in the this whole thing is played out in the great contrast between uh, St. Paul's struggle in Romans seven hmm. and then the sudden turnaround in Romans eight one, hmm. where the very thing that I want to do, that I desire to do, hmm. is the very thing that I cannot do, hmm. and then this sudden turn on the dime. However, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus that we begin to see this uh, change, this, uh, this heart change, perhaps right there. I think so. I think so. I think it's a good way of. Um, I mean, for these particular theologians, Romans seven is very important as a as one of the main descriptions of the experience of the competing desires. So they are always cross-referencing Romans seven with Galatians five uh, seventeen. Um, as uh, this is what it's like to have these competing desires of the flesh and the spirit inside you and that you're a, you're a battleground of desire. Um, and, uh, and so, yes, so the, and then the transition into Romans 8, um, which is also all about the spirit, uh, is very The spirit always comes in with affections. Uh, it's very interesting. Always in the, in the tradition, people, when they start wanting to talk about emotion, they also talk about the Holy Spirit. Paul does it, uh, and theologians do it. Um, so it's not an accident that that happens a lot in... Uh, Romans 8 as well. So, yes, I would agree with you. Simeon, I hope this is relevant. In Psalm 51, where David is confessing mm-hmm. his actions in Second Samuel, where he takes Bathsheba, mm-hmm. adultery, scheming, finally murder, mm-hmm. and in his prayer he says, against only you, God, have I sinned. And so is he just passing out crosses to everybody else and his sinning is only between God and not those who are injured by his sin hmm. and his affections and right. his lust and anger. Yeah. So the th- thing is, uh, you're saying there are consequences to these things and uh, maybe it's he's, sort of... It, he's yeah. explicitly saying my sin is only between you and me. Yeah. It's, you know, Uri, yeah. his family, hmm. uh, so, what is, the, I guess I just see it as we just get the cross to bear, hmm. but the dynamic right. is between God and the individual. Certainly the decisive, the transformative dynamic is the one between God and the individual. Um, I don't think, uh, I think there's all sorts of ways biblically that you would want to talk about that, you know, the, the concept, you know, God is not mocked, you reap what you sow, there are consequences to these things that the... You know, the creation being subjected to futility in Romans 8. I mean, there are, uh, there are things that happen that are really bad and that are real, that are consequences. But the way forward, I guess where this maps on to what I'm trying to say here, is that it's the, 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 the place where David can change is in his relationship with God. And that's where the new righteous affections would come. He says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. I think it's in the, is that Psalm 51? Um, it's a wonderful affective verse. Uh, 
and he's asking for renewed affections in light of his sin. I'm a little confused. Are you, are you suggesting that we should expect sanctification but just not have a lot of expectation about our own sanctification? <laughs> I've deliberately not commented on how much this happens. If you want to know how I... Uh, you have to come to my to Tuesday and Wednesday sermons uh, if you want a little more about this. Um, part of this comes out of a paper that I gave. There was a conference in St. Andrews uh, this past summer called Galatians and Theology, a wonderful conference where biblical scholars and theologians got together to talk about this amazing book. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't happen that much, so it's a big deal when it does. And um, I gave a paper there, and uh, and in that paper, I go a lot more into those issues and, and how much is this happening, the role of agency. Um, what about the couple of verses in Galatians where Paul seems to undermine the stuff he says about the Spirit overriding um, our emotions? And that's a big issue in, in Galatians scholarship. But for the real answer, you'll have to wait till Tuesday and Wednesday. Um. But let me, sorry, let me just, just try to interrupt. Um, the one that I think, without having to make it normative for all of Christian life, you can see these things as relating to something that's happening right now. Sometimes we go too quickly to trying to make it figure out the whole system. And the fact is, if you experience competing desires in yourself, it, it's interesting and important, and uh, it's part of my job as a theologian to try to systematize a little bit um, but I think we don't have to go there immediately. We can also just say this is how this speaks at this moment um, in Galatians 5. So, sorry, please go on. Oh, I find when I hear, you know, talks about things like this, I get really frustrated about talking about powerlessness when it's mm-hmm. talking. I'm tempted a lot, I feel like, to turn being powerless or giving up into another mm-hmm. tactic to control behavior or sin. Mm-hmm. So I just wondered if you could speak to that. How? That's a very good point, and that does, that does happen. You sort of turn the gospel into a weapon. Um, and it's funny how, I mean, the, even just the most wonderful verses about God's forgiveness or something do grow old with time sometimes. Oh, yeah, John 3.16 again. You know, I used to, that used to be one of those powerful things I'd ever read, and now it's sort of some implement I'm supposed to use to sort of force myself into a situation. But um, so there, and, and uh but in terms of powerless in particular, I mean, the whole, obviously, powerless, you can't use your power to become powerless. Um, it's something that happens uh, to you rather than something that you initiate. I think there is something about um, honesty and maybe, you know, ministry, good ministry can help create situations where we are free to be honest in a way that descriptively speeds up the process of realizing powerlessness. Um, but that's not the same as, ooh, I've got, until I get powerless, I, I, I can't do anything. Um, in a way, that, it won't come through that route. It'll come through some other real powerlessness, the kind that actually changes you. Um, I don't think it happens that much. Every day, we're like, oh, suddenly I remembered again that I'm all powerlessness. I, I think we can make it cheap that way. Um, uh, whereas when it really happens, like this kind of dynamic, like you know, Romans 7 to 8, this is life-changing stuff. This is this is heavy-duty. Uh, this isn't just oh, I every night in my slightly awkward conversation with my wife about money. You know, I need I learned about powerlessness again, but then the next day I hadn't learned it again. I mean, these are real deep affections, and this is, there's a reality here. I think that I think uh, 
we can cheapen by, by trying to control a little bit. But it's a good question, um, and it's, uh, it's probably the role of, of, a good, of a good minister, I think. Um, and also, it's ultimately, it's what the Holy Spirit does, is it makes these same old truths alive again in some way that we can actually uh, hear, Lord willing. Thank you. Trying to get a tip for next week. Simi, thank you for the paper. Uh, could you speak a little bit to, I mean, we talked about the Holy Spirit and the necessity of letting the Spirit do its work. Could you speak to means? I mean, in other words, there are the Augustinian tradition, the Lutheran tradition, I mean, even Luther on something like prayer. Why do we pray? Well, it's kind of awkward to hear Luther say this, but because we're commanded to do it. So there's a sense in which the means that move toward um, chastening and changing our affections, because I thought I heard you attenuate a little bit the significance of teaching in that, in that particular role as well. I, I'd like to hear you expound on that a little bit. Yeah, well, um, it's good to see you, Mark, by the way. Um, the, uh, well, there's a lot to say um, there. I mean, for Luther and the Lutheran tradition, I think, I think they made a mistake by focus, that the, what happens when there's a worry that this is too um, out of control. Uh, and Luther develops his, part of actually what my book is about, is this transition where Luther goes from the position that I'm describing to one in which he says, well, really, basically, God works through word and sacrament, through preaching, specifically. He says, God will not speak to you in your private room. He starts to think that your emotions are much are not reliable, and the only thing that's reliable is a kind of sacramental view of the word, which just works. There's a lot of power to that view. That's a very important view, and there's elements of the Catholic tradition in that view, um, and you know, strands in the Anglican tradition, obviously, that take that very seriously. Most of my friends, actually, in, in theology in England, um, would fall into that that kind of view. Um, but I do think that the, the, the explicit intent of this, and this is middle period, this is early Pelagian Augustine, and he, he too kind of goes into a different area. Um, but this is really is trying to work against uh, a, a human tendency to want to make it about learning and about um, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. And it's deliberately trying to undermine that, that human tendency. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I teach for a living, I mean, as, as you do. And I think there's a lot of value. Here I am. Hopefully, I hope there's something valuable is happening in, in this sort of rational uh, teaching process. But, um, but I, I don't want to declaw the force of this tradition. Um, which at its best, and I think you get it at its best in the Book of Common Prayer, integrates um, our emotional lives and Christian theology and the work of the Holy Spirit and what's happening in church and liturgy and sacrament into an extraordinary whole. Uh, Cranmer is much better in his liturgy than he is in his didactic writings. I don't know if you've, he's, he's a little bit more, he's clunky uh, in his didactic writings, but he's a genius in his, in his prayers. Um, it's actually the place where I concluded my my talk about these things at this Galatians conference was talking about how these issues are resolved very profoundly in this um, in this tradition of uh, and something like that collect, which brings together. It's a prayer. It's active. It has content, but it's also a prayer about God doing it and not us doing it. And that's a very interesting interweaving of some of these these issues. But I, I wouldn't want to declaw the tradition too quickly, I guess. Um, but we can talk more about that. Well, Simeon, it's been a great pleasure, uh, and look eagerly look forward to Monday and Tuesday uh, and Wednesday. And again, I'll see you tonight. All right. God bless you. Thanks so much. Thank you,